0: Good morning once again. Thank you for joining us this weekend. Unfortunately, once again, it's another weekend where we're not together. I've run into a lot of us around town, walking around or in local businesses. And I know for everyone, this is getting very, very old. Uh, continuing to pray for our church, for the families in our church, and I hope that you are as well. And um, yeah, just continuing to pray. and. As always, a reminder that if any of you ever need anything or need to talk, that I'm more than happy to do that. And also continue to check up on on our fellow members of the church. Our text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, and I'll read that passage as we begin. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, But has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you that you invite us into a relationship, and that you have made yourself known. The heavens declare your glory, and you have revealed yourself through your Son. Lord, may we be growing in this time as your followers and disciples. As we discuss matters today relating to your divine nature and the relationship with your Son who came into our world, I pray that you guard the words that I say as being faithful to your Scripture and honoring to you, Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We also want to pray for the Risto family on the loss of Lois this week. Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy you offer through the gospel. And we praise you for the goodness of your gospel and accepting all who believe in you and trust in you. And we continue, Lord, to pray for your nearness To the Risto family in this time of mourning, Lord, we thank you for your son. Lord, on Mother's Day, I want to pray for all the mothers in our church. We pray for the young mothers who still have children at home, and I pray for you to lead and guide them in the monumental task that they have of raising children. Lord, we also pray for all the women who have touched our lives, who might not have even been our mother, but who blessed us, taught us, loved us, encouraged us, For grandmothers, aunts, sisters, teachers, friends, and neighbors. Lord, we pray also for those who might have bittersweet moments on Mother's Day, for some mothers who are no longer with us, for some perhaps a challenging relationship with a mother, or a mother's challenging relationship with a child. For others, there may have been a desire to be a mother which has not been fulfilled, Lord, may you be near to all of these people, all of these women on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. And I would once again like to wish a happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. And that's just one more reason uh, among many that, I'm sorry that we can't be together today, to, to celebrate you and, and honor you. Theology matters. In the year 325, Emperor Constantine called church leaders from throughout the Roman Empire and met in the city of Nicaea in modern-day Turkey. Among other things discussed at the two-long-month council were theological issues regarding the relationship of the Father and the Son. On one side, you had a priest named Arius, who espoused a theology that Jesus, while exalted, was a lesser being than God. Arianism, the theology of Arius, believed that Jesus was created and separate from the Father. At the council, this position was condemned and ruled a heresy. Arius was excommunicated. The Arian heresy went against the Bible. If Jesus were not divine, if he were less than God then he would not be able to pay the penalty of our sins. And if he were in any way less than God, our worship of him would be blasphemy. Contrary to what books like the Da Vinci Code might depict, these ideas were not new in 325 and were already prevalent within the church, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. The council just helped to formalize a theology that was already agreed upon. One of the great contributions of the Council of Nicaea was the Nicene Creed, which gave the Church a biblically-based creed that helped distill the biblical teachings on the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Nicene Creed is recognized by Protestant, Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox churches, and it has been recognized throughout the church for almost 1,700 years. And today, all across the world, churches recite the Nicene Creed as part of their liturgy. To quote from part of the creed, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. There's more to the creed, but for our purposes today, that's the relevant portion of the Nicene Creed. Despite the fact that Arius was excommunicated and his theology was condemned, his ideas lived on in the Roman world. And really, it continues today in various streams of theology. Notable examples of churches that fall into Arianism would include groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who exalt Jesus, but who in their theology ultimately view him as less than God. We're continuing in the Gospel of John this morning. When we were in John a couple weeks ago, Jesus was giving a response to the Pharisees regarding his relationship to God on the heels of a controversy regarding the observance of the Sabbath. And as chapter 5 continues, Jesus gives a profound theological speech regarding who he is and his relationship to God. We see how Jesus relates to God, but we also see in this passage that Jesus himself is divine. And what we're going to do in our passage this morning is I got four affirmations which point us to the divinity of Christ. First thing we will learn is that Jesus has the power of God. Beginning again in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What a statement that Jesus makes. A verse like this could be easily misinterpreted to justify Arianism, where Jesus says the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing? Is Jesus saying that he's less than God? How is Jesus equal to God if he can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing? That is not A minor question that is not an insignificant question. A hotly contested contemporary theological debate is when Jesus' subordination began. Some believe that Jesus is eternally subordinate to God. I don't affirm that view. I don't think that's the historical view, and more importantly, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I believe that as fully God and man, as fully God and man, Jesus became subordinate to the Father at his incarnation, in connection with his nature of being fully God, but also fully man. Because he was fully man, he necessarily needed to be submissive to the Father. But this does not diminish his divinity or imply that Jesus is created. His divinity is how the Gospel of John begins, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Back in our passage, where Jesus says that he can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing, that also has significant theological implications. We have one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And we do not have competing wills. It matters that the Father and the Son are unified in will and purpose. They do not have competing egos. They both operate from perfect knowledge, wisdom, and righteousness. We see the unity between Jesus and God. That he can do nothing of his own accord. But we also see a distinction of persons. Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus. Jesus says in our verse, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. But listen to what comes next. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The ultimate point of this verse is not what Jesus can't do, The point is what Jesus can do. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The first implication of that statement is that Jesus can do everything. Because God can do everything and Jesus can do whatever the Father does. And a second important implication of this verse is that the authority with which Jesus teaches and acts is the very authority of God. Furthermore, in telling us that whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does, we are again pointed to the unity between the Father and the Son. Nothing in this verse indicates any competition or disagreement between the two. And everything in this verse points us to the harmony that exists between the two. Verse 20 Jesus says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. What a wonderful reality that the father loves the son. They operate in perfect unity and love. Perfect. And they always have. God has always existed in fellowship with his own nature. He didn't make us because he needed someone to love. He already has a perfect relationship within his own nature. He didn't make us because he was lonely. He's relational within his own nature. We don't have a needy God. And there's another significant implication from our text. And this idea comes from uh, from D.A. Carson in his commentary on the Gospel of John. If the Father shows the Son all that he is doing... And if the Son is obedient to the will of the Father, that means that the Son is therefore revealing the Father to us through his life and ministry and deeds. Jesus will later communicate this idea in John chapter 14, verse 31, when he says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. We too often act as if there's a disconnect between Jesus and God. There isn't. There is no disconnect. There is only perfect unity. Like two musicians playing the same piece of music in perfect time with each other. Jesus reveals God to us. He says as much in John chapter 14, verse 9, when he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Back in John chapter 5, second part of verse 20, Jesus says, And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. At the beginning of our chapter, Jesus healed a man who had been born, who had been unable to walk for thirty-eight years. Jesus healing this man is what the Pharisees have just witnessed, and he's saying that he will do even greater works than those. And he adds, "So that you may marvel," Jesus is progressively displaying the glory of God through his signs and wonders. But what are the greater works? He'll elaborate on that in the following verse. And that brings us to our second point, which shows us the divinity of Jesus, that he has power over life and death. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Jesus has the power over life and death. That is an ability that only God has. Therefore, Jesus is God. A lot of people have claimed to be the Messiah throughout history. And they're all lying in graveyards. Jesus died and rose and lives today. He's not a secondary divine figure. Jesus himself is God. In the Old Testament, we see the prophet Elijah raising someone from the dead. But he does this as a prophet on behalf of God, in the power of God. But with Jesus, he himself has power over life. Something to keep in mind. Something to keep in mind about this passage is that Jesus is making massive claims when he's talking to the Pharisees. I'm often pretty critical of the Pharisees. But let's try to, just for a moment, consider this entire conversation from their perspective. Earlier in this section, the Pharisees confront Jesus over a Sabbath controversy, and Jesus tells them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And the implication of that is that Jesus can do everything which God does. He can do the things which God does, and he calls God his Father. It's not crazy that the Pharisees would be taken aback by this. And this is obviously carried over in our passage this week where Jesus says whatever the Father does that the son does likewise. Again, throughout history, people have claimed to be the Messiah. People have claimed to be the son of God. People have claimed to be prophets. It's easy to talk the talk. It's easy to make a claim. What's not easy is having the power over life and death. And it is through this that we will see Jesus validated for who he is. In one sense, we can almost understand why the Pharisees would have reservations with what Jesus is saying in this passage. These are serious claims, which need to be investigated and considered. But in John chapter 11, we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. That. Authenticates who Jesus is. When Jesus, in our passage in chapter 5, refers to the greater works that he would show, which would point us to his glory, he was talking about raising a man from the dead. But when he does that, do do the religious leaders bow down and worship him? Are their lives transformed? Do they become followers of Christ? Let's look at John chapter 11, verses 47 and 48. He has just raised Lazarus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They see what Jesus is doing And instead of recognizing him for who he is, they are weary that he will become too popular and that it will shake things up too much. Verse 53 of John chapter 11 says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. But that all still ultimately worked to the divine plan because it set the stage for the ultimate Authentication for who Jesus is. They killed Jesus in an effort to stop him, but his victory over death caused a paradigm shift in the world and in human history and in the lives of billions of people. They killed him and thought that that was the end of it, but it was only the beginning. They killed him and thought they could stop him, but that was where the gospel really began with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In his ministry, we see Jesus, we see his power over physical life and death. But because of his resurrection, we see that that Jesus has the power over spiritual life, and as a result, grants eternal life. That people who are dead in sin, separated from God, are forgiven through Christ. We cannot be good enough on our own. Because even at our best, we're still sinful. Even at our best, we're still imperfect. But Jesus never sinned. And he was perfect. He is God who came into the world to save the world. You can be forgiven. You can have life. But it is only through Jesus that that is available. He is the one who has the power over physical life and spiritual life. And he died so that you could be forgiven. He died so that you could have life. Jesus Is Lord. A third thing that we learn in our passage, which points us to the divinity of Christ, that he has the authority to judge, beginning in verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's another loaded statement. Once again, only God can judge. That was the understanding of the Pharisees. That was the teaching of the Old Testament. That God is the true, righteous, perfect, divine judge. And Jesus says that all judgment has been given to him. That does not mean that Jesus judges irrespective of the Father. He'll say the opposite in chapter 5, verse 30. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There is perfect unity of will and judgment between the Father and the Son. They judge in accordance with perfect justice and wisdom. But Jesus does say in this passage that judgment belongs to Him in accordance with the will of the Father. Again, these are very, very nuanced theological ideas in these verses. I'll pause for a moment because a skeptical person might ask, I thought Jesus came to bring forgiveness. I thought he came to bring love. He did. I thought Jesus is a God of love. He is. I thought Jesus said, judge not. He did. The judgment is in response to rejecting Jesus. Jesus did come into the world to bring love and grace through the gospel." But it is through faith in him. Without faith, there is no grace. All are deserving of judgment and condemnation. And the basis for our judgment and the basis for our forgiveness lies on our faith in Christ. Let's continue in our passage and we'll come to our fourth point. Jesus is worthy of the honor of God. Verse 23. Uh, Jesus has said that judgment is given and, given to him, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I'll read that last part again. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That is why judgment is given to Christ. Judgment is given to him so that we can honor the Son properly. And the proper way to honor the Son is the same level of homage and worship and adoration and love that the Father is worthy to receive. I'm sure you've heard this before. So many people act like all religions are the same, like all religions are equally valid, like they all teach the same things, like they're all pointing to the same God. This passage says that that is wrong. What Jesus is saying is that if we don't understand him and who he is, that if we get Jesus wrong, we get God wrong. It is not possible to honor God without honoring Christ. It is not possible to approach a holy God except through Christ. And it is not possible to be forgiven by God, the Father, without the grace of his Son, to whom judgment has been entrusted. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There is no way to eternal life apart from Christ. There is one way to eternal life, and it is through the cross and the crucified Lord. It is through believing in Jesus. There's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. This idea that Jesus is Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. So many of the absolute claims made in this section make me think back to Lewis's words that Jesus confronts you with every statement that he's made in this passage. He's made absolute claims about himself, his divinity, his power, his judgment, and the eternal life that he gives. He confronts you with that reality and forces you to decide what you believe. To quote C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity... I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What do you believe about Jesus? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it points us to your Son and the salvation that he offers. Lord, I thank you for the perfect relationship that exists within the Godhead between you and the Son and the Spirit. Lord, all working together for your glory and to magnify that glory, Lord, I thank you for the salvation that you offer to us. And I pray that we be a church of people who believe in that and trust in that and have lives that are changed by that. In Jesus' name, amen.